Welcome back, everybody, to The Practical Woodsman. I'm Rut, the creator of The Practical Woodsman, and your host. That's right. It's my genius which has brought this all into existence. This week, we're going to palaver a bit about why people die in situations that you think you could easily survive. I'm going to share the details of the first day of my recent excursion into the backcountry with several first-timers, folks who'd never done anything like it before. So, stick around. Hey everybody, thanks for joining me again for this episode. I appreciate it. Before we get into today's discussion, let me make a couple of announcements. Uh, got a dedicated online community for all things the practical woodsman related, and that's found on the Locals platform. It's a free speech platform. It's a really nice, nice platform. So hope you'll join me over there. You can do that by going to thepracticalwoodsman.locals.com or you can download the locals.com app from the App Store and just search for The Practical Woodsman. Locals, by the way, is spelled L-O-C-A-L-S. Uh, announcement number two, got a new video adventure up. If you ain't seen it, I hope you'll go check her out. Uh, it's available on YouTube and on Rumble. Remember, adventures are not the podcast, what you're listening to now. Adventures are me actually in the woods, showing off my time in the woods. So that is titled Adventure 13, Into the Backcountry with First Timers. So if you ain't seen it, go check her out. Let's get into the meat and taters of today's discussion. Why people die in situations that you think you could easily survive there's a lot of factors a lot of fine-tuned details that uh, don't come into focus in any preparedness planning until when do you know the answer to that from experience do you know the answer to that I do from experience I know that no matter how much you plan how many no matter how many eventualities you imagine in your brain and no matter how geared up and prepared you think you are there's one thing that you just cannot prepare for and that's for experience there's certain things that just don't come into focus until you're actually in a situation so you can think that you have every base covered and you can think that you have every absolutely everything you need there's no danger whatsoever and then you get into a situation and very quickly you find out the weaknesses and the flaws in your planning that's happened to me several times and uh, if you're a, a longtime woodsman like myself I'm sure it's happened to you too to give you a real life example of the reality of this happening to people, 
Did you know that people, you've probably heard of this on the news, people who have fled upstairs to escape floods have been forced to move up even higher. Well, what's higher than upstairs? It's their attic. They get into their attics and they find themselves trapped. Why do they find themselves trapped? Because they don't have any tools to chop through the roof to get out. That's right. You see, in their, in their imagination, they said, you know what? There is a possibility that we could be in a flood, but no worries, because we'll just go upstairs. Water will never get that high up. Well, water does get that high up. And maybe they even plan for that. And they say, you know what? Even if it does get upstairs, we still got the attic. So they get up into the attic. Well, guess what? What they did not anticipate is that the water would go even higher. It would go up even up into the attic. Surely you've heard of this in the news or, you know, uh, during times of hurricane seasons and stuff like that. So they get up into the attic there and they find themselves trapped. And no tools to chop through the roof to get out. You see, it didn't even occur to them that they, that, that might be a thing that they might need to, to think about. The attic fills with water and they drown. Yikes. You see, they, they thought they had a plan ahead of time. But what really screwed them over? What really screwed them over was not that they're stupid. It's not that they're any less intelligent than you or I. Um, in fact, these are folks who probably have lived around floods and water for large portions of their life. So if it's not that they're dumb... It's not that they have no experience whatsoever. Then what is it? It's that they didn't have experience. They didn't have intimate experience with that particular circumstance. They lacked an intimate understanding about the true nature of that scenario. And because they lacked an intimate understanding about the true nature of that specific scenario what happened it prevented them from being able to truly predict all of the possible outcomes and prepare accordingly well I don't want the focus here to be flooding but I am trying to highlight the phenomenon of unknown unknowns who come up with that term there was a politician who come up with that term Donald Rumsfeld it was and you know a lot of people uh, in the press gave him a hard time about that unknown unknown so it's just jibber jabber it's, it means nothing but if you think about it it's brilliant he says there's things that you know you don't know well that even knowing that there are things you don't know gives you an advantage right if there's things I don't know about a, a certain region I'm going into in the backcountry for example Simply knowing that those unknowns exist gives me an advantage. I can prepare to some degree for that. But what about unknown unknowns? These are things that you don't know that you don't know. 
you see it was brilliant and really all the press that chided him and everything made fun of him for using that term uh, really have showed themselves to be the the dummies haven't they because that's brilliant unknown unknowns there are things you don't know that you don't know how dangerous that can be and the short answer for why people die in situations where you and I say uh, you know I don't I don't get it how did that person die uh, because you know well, well we'll get into a conversation about that but you know you're guilty of it I'm guilty of it everybody out there is guilty of it boy that guy's an idiot that guy's an idiot died like that well not so fast not so fast in fact if you're the type of person who would if that's your default thought is that guy's a dummy that's why he died that guy's gonna go on uh, get get the Darwin Awards right if that's your default thought you're the type of person who is in danger of dying in a similar way I will say that uh, with no uh, jest whatsoever uh, you really are if that's your default type of thinking because you see it that type of thinking uh, which would ascribe somebody who's probably every bit as smart as you to dying in a way that you and you saying uh, that would never happen to me and the only reason it happened to that person is because there's a dummy they're a dummy and I'm not du- I'm not a dummy so it, that wouldn't happen to me you see the risky the risky uh, mindset that uh, a person like that is living with or a risky attitude the person who died probably died for carrying around a, same, a similar attitude you see what I'm saying so let's be careful about that sort of attitude instead of your default being well that guy's just a dummy I'd never do something stupid like that why don't you ask yourself what sorts of unknown unknowns might that person have encountered there some, are some exceptions to that for example I just heard about a guy trying to ride New York I think it was New York subway uh, trying to ride on top of the subway like he sees in the movies got his head knocked off uh, that that's not a death by unknown unknowns that's death by I- idiocy probably well I shouldn't say idiocy it was a young younger guy that's death by ignorance really death by ignorance you know who of us in our uh, teen years did not do something that we got away with that many others have not I, I know I have did some really stupid stuff it just kind of goes hand in hand with being a young buck of uh, you know teenage years and being of the male persuasion how many times have you heard of people dying in a tornado and you thought well why didn't they just do such and such if I had been in that situation I would have done such and such right that's the that's the way we think dangerous dangerous to just assume that a person was dumb and that's why they died while I was living in New England remember I lived in the Boston area and there for a few years I ain't from there of course I'm from Appalachia but I lived there I lived in Philly and uh, but while I was living in New England never forget this story about a woman named Ekatya or Ekaterina Matrasova froze to death in a snowstorm I remember it being all over the news they were looking for her 
she was carrying one of those uh, emergency beacons you know one of those GPS emergency beacons everybody thinks it's going to save their life one of these days don't they could do a whole show on these emergency beacons I don't like them I'll tell you why I don't like them I don't like them because they give you a false sense of uh, security as you'll see in this story with Katya Matrasova or Kate Matrasova she was carrying one of those things one of those locator beacons she's in a snowstorm I think it was in the White Mountains of New England think about her mindset if I get into trouble if I find myself too deep in, in, in a situation I can always set off this locator beacon but the locator beacon is giving you a false sense of security so what what is the natural result of that false sense of security the natural result of that false sense of security is you wait too long to set off the locator beacon because you say it's always there I, I can set it off when I most need it and so you let conditions you let yourself get in over your head within those conditions and that's what happened I remember that it was just all over the news them trying to get to her one reason why she's probably in the news everywhere because her husband is like a millionaire banker so I remember thinking at that time it, there was a, a vicious snowstorm going on in the White Mountains and you might remember that I moved out there specifically for the backcountry opportunities and once I got out there I realized it wasn't like I imagined first of all I have no interest in being on a mountaintop with no resources and bald no trees at a certain altitude I have no interest in that my interest is being immersed in forest but here she is top of this mountain in I think it was January or February but I remember this huge uh, storm raging up there and let me tell you a story about that uh, this is not in my outline but I'll, I'll tell you about it anyway when I first moved out there I had uh, the, the great hopes of going out there to the White Mountains and just exploring to my heart's content and I was working for this hospital as a Spanish interpreter I was talking to a doctor about this he says you know they've got cameras set up there on the White Mountains this was in uh, I ain't kidding about this I think it was in late September right so anywhere else if I were like in Pennsylvania West Virginia Kentucky any anywhere in the mountains in West Virginia for example in September I'd be fine I'd be fine all the way up until November probably so I did not factor that in when I moved out there got up there got started uh, working up there about September and told this doctor that I was had plans for that weekend to go out to the White Mountains he said really I said yeah I was wondering why he sounded surprised he says they got a camera set up let's take a look at this camera he spins around in his chair there got the wheels on it you know goes to his computer pulls up that webcam live from the top of the White Mountains and I'm telling you what it was a complete whiteout a complete blizzard was raging up there you couldn't see 10 feet and I said well there goes my plans I there's no way no way I can go up there in that that was like at the end of September so this 
Katya Matrasova, she's up there in like January or February, and uh, what during the snowstorm with her locator beacon, alone, the girl couldn't have weighed. Uh, she couldn't weigh 120 pounds soaking wet. Now, it's interesting when you can go on YouTube and you can find video on YouTube of the search party going looking for her. The winds up there are, it's like 100 mile per hour winds. There's these 200 pound guys up there with 80 pound packs on their backs. And you can watch the wind just blow them around like cardboard boxes. There's this one guy, he's up at the, he's up like on top of a crag. He's slowly trying to hike down. The wind blows him off the crag and he just floats like a kite until he lands on the ground down below that crag. It's unbelievable. So you think about Katya, uh, 120 pounds soaking wet, and uh, what that wind must have been doing to her. Anyway, my point is, as I'm hearing the news reports, I'm thinking to myself, well, I would have, I would just do this and this. I would just do this, and I would do this other thing, and I'd just be fine. I'd have this with me, and I'd have that with me, and I'd be fine. So I don't know what the big deal is. Well, they found her froze to death with her locator beacon she had waited too long conditions got too serious when they found her she was frozen solid but I I had thoughts like that remember the topic is why do some people die in situations that we think we would be just fine in well it's probably because you don't understand the true nature of the conditions or you underestimate them, or there are unknown unknowns to you that for a lack of intimacy with that sp- specific type of circumstance is causing you to arrive at foolhardy conclusions like you would have done better. Not all the time. In some circumstances, maybe you would do better. Maybe I would do better. But most of the time, I think, of it, I think it's an overestimation of... Our knowledge of the thing and an underestimation of the true nature of the circumstances that the person really found herself or himself in. I said, why did she undertake that trip while there was the risk of a powerful snowstorm at a very high altitude? I said to myself, why didn't she just stop when when she started to become overwhelmed? Why didn't she just stop, build a fire? Right? That seems easy enough to do. Why didn't she do that? Why didn't she get a fire going? How about this? Why didn't she just stop and set up a shelter? Doesn't that seem to make sense? Was she not packing a significantly insulated sleeping bag? Right? Another legitimate seeming question. Was she not dressed in plenty of layers? Did she not have more layers in her backpack that she could change into? If that were me, I thought, that would never have happened. That was in 2015, by the way, when that was going on, and I was living up there, and I was following the story with great interest. Over the years since then, I've learned there were a lot of unknown unknowns. Remember, I didn't even know that in September in the White Mountains, you could have a blizzard up on top of the mountain. Because I didn't factor in that altitude that far north. Here's some other things I didn't factor in. 
that wind. You remember the wind I told you? 100 miles per hour, streaking across through there, knocking 200, uh, not knocking 200 uh, pound guys over, lifting them up and carrying them like kites, like kites, not like cakes, like kites. They're carrying 80 pounds on their back uh, uh, worth of gear. And it's just, it's just lifting them up like kites. Unbelievable. Remember in the past, I've told you that in my estimation, probably the most underestimated natural condition that you can find yourself facing out in the backcountry is wind. That's true in the summertime. It's true in the wintertime. Think about what your shelter is made out of. Could it withstand 100 mile per hour winds? that can lift 280 guys who are weighing 280 pounds because of what they got on their back and can just lift them up like a kite could your shelter endure that probably not in fact unless you're carrying a log cabin on your back I would say absolutely not these things are made out of cloth that can rip rip stop nylon sure but let's say that you're, you're hiking on top of five feet of snow that's what your guy lines are going to be staked out into snow those are going to rip right out right even if you find a rock or something rocks to securely tie your tent down uh 100 miles an hour rip the rip a tent like that to shreds so that would answer the question right why should why didn't she just stop and build a shelter why didn't she just get behind a rock to protect herself from the wind well she probably did i don't know but if she could find a crag and she's got any brains at all, that's what she did. But it, it didn't keep her didn't keep her warm enough. You know why? Because with that type of wind chill, they estimate that the with the wind chill, it was about a hundred degrees below zero. A hundred degrees below zero. And now my question about what didn't she carry enough layers seems pretty ridiculous, don't it? seems pretty ridiculous how about stopping and getting a fire going well you're above tree line what fuel are you going to find up there under five feet of snow what fuel are you going to find to build a fire and even if there were fuel to build a fire how are you going to do it in a hundred mile per hour wind see i asked myself all those questions like why didn't she just do this why didn't she just do that i would have done this i would do that i'd be just fine that's my thinking at the time and yet just a couple of years after that so that was in 2015 2016 I think it was 2016 so maybe even just a year later I found myself in almost precisely the same circumstances the difference was I, I don't carry a locator beacon and again I will reiterate that I think locator beacons are more harmful than good if you if you're not carrying a locator beacon, what will what will the natural re, what will the natural effect be of you not carrying something like that? The natural effect of that will be that you won't take unnecessary risks, will you? I mean, cell phones are bad enough. You say, well, I'll just climb up to a higher elevation. I'll be able to get a signal. I'll send a text message out. 90% of the time you can't you can't get a signal not when you need it not when not not when you need it 
certainly not in conditions like that so yeah i found myself in a similar circumstance i underestimated the conditions where i was going got started about 11 o'clock at night in the mountains i believe this was late february where i was it hadn't you know hadn't snowed all winter long and then so that was a mistake i made assuming that the conditions where i was going were going to be similar to the conditions where i was and that did not turn out to be the case i got out there that night and uh, even though i was driving a, a jeep wrangler four four by four uh, the snow was so deep out there i was afraid to to park just any old where because i thought i might not be able to get out of here and i'm helping i'm out there i'm out there in the middle of nowhere that is nowhere where you want to get stuck and have to walk for any length of time and you know that should have been a warning sign for me when i got out there and saw all that compacted snow and it wasn't just snow it was snow that had been clearly melting and refreezing melting and refreezing all winter long up at up in those mountains and i should have paid attention to that i should say i could have paid attention to that i don't like to say should i could have paid attention to that and said you know what it's just me out here me and my dog it was me and old bradbury my my dog the one who just passed away back in april but i said you know I, i've got a lot of experience with this i'm really really good at this i'm prepared for almost any eventuality so again an overestimation in myself an underestimation in the conditions facing me I got about five miles in that night uh snow coming up all, all them all, almost all the way up to my knees uh, I didn't see any other footprints or anything out there. I was out there all by myself. Got into, uh, got to a place where I wanted to set up a camp. Tried to clear as much of the ground away as I could to get a fire going, and I could not get a fire going. And I am a master fire maker. I have gotten, I have gotten fire started after three days of pouring rain in the rain. Notice what I'm telling you. I haven't just gotten fire started after it's raining and it clears up and it's not raining and I get a fire going. No, I've gotten fires going after three days of rain. Everything is absolutely soaked. And even in pouring rain, I've gotten all night fires going. Granted, it took me two or three hours to do it. But, you know, you, you can see that I would I would take something like that build my confidence up in myself and say i can get a fire started any anywhere well <laughs> it's different when everything is absolutely caked in snow and ice that has been melting refreezing melting refreezing new st snow coming down on top of it and all of the wood you're having to pull is you're having to pull it out from underneath snow you know you i know you all know the trick of going around you find wood and you see this on every survival thing don't you going around finding hanging wood off branches and everything those were caked in snow and ice snow and ice that had been melting refreezing melting refreezing so listen be careful when you're watching these survival guys tell you oh it's just easy you just go around you just find these hanging twigs and everything like that and you get your fire going not every environment allows for that not all circumstances present that possibility to you as i learned I was worn out that night. I was tired. I was sleepy. I remember thinking, if I could just get two hours of sleep, then I would have the energy to do all this stuff I have to do. But where am I going to sleep? 
There's nowhere to sleep. Everything's covered in snow and ice. So I'm trying to get this fire going so that I can stay warm. And my next order of business is getting a shelter up. I get my shelter up. First of all, I get this baby fire going. Baby fire is struggling the whole time. I'm working with it for like two hours. Finally get this baby fire going. And I mean, I'm babying it and I'm babying it. And it just wants to go out. Go get my shelter set up. While this baby fire is just, it's just dying to die, if you know what I mean. Get my shelter set up. I get over back to the fire to try to baby that thing some more and get that going. Guess what happens next? Wind, and not only wind, but freezing rain. Yeah, it was like the worst, the worst. <laughs> play of events that I could even imagine you, you can't conjure up something like that um, for a story and yet there are, there I found myself in the middle of it in the middle of nowhere with my dog and me and I'm trying to keep my dog comfortable and from freezing to death too say so, well I'm going to get into the shelter here get into the shelter guess what freezing rain collapses my shelter no I can't use my shelter freezing rain what would you do in let's say 40 mile per hour winds freezing rain everything's covered in snow and ice everything is covered in snow and ice that has been melting and freezing melting and freezing for months everything is sopping i mean to the core everything is wet so the weather turned found myself battling nine million things at once on my own in the middle of the night while all i want to do is sleep all i could think all i could think about was if I could just get a little bit of sleep I could handle this unexpected turns of events snow change into freezing rain collapse in my tent boats, my boots soaking through in the shin high snow my feet turned into lumps of ice my feet were very very cold I couldn't keep a fire going that my fire did and go out by the way in the freezing rain of course i mentioned all the wood was sopping wet buried under snow which required an incredible amount of effort to find i had to i had to shuffle through the snow and let my feet hit stuff underneath the bear under the snow and dig down into it and pull it up to to find it a lot of energy i was exhausted desperate for sleep i'm glad i survived and was able to learn from the experience but uh i'll tell you true i suddenly had a lot more empathy and understanding for that woman who died in new england i i feel like i i, I understand a after that experience i understood her much better i can handle this i can handle this i'm prepared for this no matter what gets thrown at me i've got a solution well, as human beings, we have real limits. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, there is a term for a person who can recognize their limits and be content to work within those limits. It's called uh, modesty. Kind of an outdated word, ain't it? Modesty. A lot of people think that uh, modest, for example, that modest people like uh, wouldn't we would never accomplish anything great as human beings if people were modest. Uh, but that's not true. 
you think about the moon landing back in the 60s. How did man get to the moon and back? Absolutely by being modest. And I'll tell you why. Remember what modesty is? It's recognizing your, your, just your real limits and being content to work within those limits. Well, you know what the scientists of the time did not do? Do you know what they did not put their sights on? They did not put their sights on Mars. Why not Mars? Why, why did we aim for the moon? Because that was within our limits at the time of scientific knowledge and uh, scientific advancement, the people of the time looked at what we could reasonably achieve safely, and they said, Let, let's make that our goal. Let's do that. So they did not aim for, the, for Mars. They aimed for the moon. That's why we got men to the moon and back safely multiple times, because of modesty. So don't let anybody convince you that modesty is outdated because modesty is not. Here's what modesty is not. Modesty is not putting limits on ourselves. That's not what modesty is. Modesty is recognizing what our true limits are. You know, and a limit just is what it is, whether you recognize it as, as such or not. You know, I can't breathe underwater. That, that's not me limiting myself. That's me recognizing my true limits. Now, if I want to do something underwater, I can create a contraption or something like that that will allow me to stay underwater longer, but be very foolish for me to say, ah, that limit doesn't exist. You know, whether I recognize it exists or not, it does exist. So people who recognize limits are more successful in everything. Think about that in your endeavors in the backcountry. You want to be successful? Want to come out alive? Always try to recognize your true limits and work within those limits. Be content to work within those limits. What Katya should have done, uh, there I go again. What Katya could have done, if she were a more modest person, is that she could have recognized that as human beings, there are just some things that are way, way more powerful than us. And uh, Mother Nature's one of those things. Could have saved your life. But the other thing is unknown unknowns. Um, that's a term you should adopt. Unknown unknowns. Uh, we all live with them. Now, they can become known unknowns if you first accept that unknown, those unknown unknowns ex exist. Now, am I starting to sound like a riddle? I don't mean to. What I'm trying to say is that in order for you to learn what those unknown unknowns are, you first have to be humble enough to accept that, that they exist. Once you do that, then you can start investigating and make them known unknowns, which, remember what we said, gives you an advantage. Even if there are still things you don't know, if you know that you don't know them, that in itself is a great advantage. Here's some challenges I find to being prepared. Uh, it's kind of related to this subject. The greatest challenge for me, I think, to being prepared for all things involves two things. Number one, determining the best one solution system for every possible scenario. It can be one backpack. Right, one backpack that will best serve me in 
every circumstance that I can imagine. That's number one challenge. Uh, number two greatest challenge is the financial. So the first thing's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> I want multiple packs supplied with the same gear, organized in a way that will provide me with the best comfort and the best utility and the greatest number of scenarios. It has to work in all four seasons all the time. And you know, I feel like I'm getting there after 30 years. I feel like I, I'm, well, I'm closer than I was, you know, last year. and I'm closer than I was the year before. But it's an ongoing process, that's for sure. And every time I think I have my survival pack built exactly the way I want it, every single time that it gets put to the test, I find weaknesses in my setup. And I think of improvements that can be made. What's that? Unknown unknowns. Remember, we were talking back at the beginning of this discussion. There are just certain things that you cannot even imagine you might need or might be an issue until you find yourself in similar circumstances. And then you get an intimate insight, don't you? Into just what the true nature of that, the specifics of that type of circumstance involve. Now, why, why do I talk about a one-solution setup? Because you never know which circumstances you're going to find yourself in. I want to be able to grab and go at any time. You can prepare for winter. You can prepare for spring. You can pre prepare for summer. You can prepare for the desert. You can prepare for a deserted island. But how do you know when you're going to be in any of those circumstances? For, for sure. That's why I say a one-solution setup. Now, secondly, the financial buying triples and quadruples of things actually using them regularly trying new tools food options and all these things is expensive when I first uh, wrote this I'd spent $2,000 about $2,000 on refitting my basic regular gear which after more than a decade of abuse was overdue to be replaced and upgraded and this didn't even include any big ticket items like sleeping bags boots clothing so in my ideal world I would have I think at least four identical setups on standby with the exact same gear in it every single piece of gear down to the very last thing identical in all four setups because of familiarity you know you, you you find something that really works for you 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 want to stick with it that's the way i feel about it also i want to be able to know where everything's at in my pack by muscle memory i just want to be able to reach in there and know where it's at and of course every backpack you get is different right it's got different pockets located in different places and all this stuff um, i would just love to have a perfect setup and to duplicate that like four times so that would be in my ideal world that would be beautiful but i just can't afford to spend that kind of money in that way i mean it's easier now than it was uh, when i originally wrote it I, I originally wrote this for an online thing uh, probably back in 2017 somewhere around there so but you know it's all it all holds up financially 
there's a lot of options like on uh, Amazon now that financially make things a lot more viable than they used to be. Uh, it used to be like the real specialized gear, you know, you'd have to get from a specialized gear place like REI, Cabela's, those sorts of things. So the financial is, that has improved. But still, these things, you know, if you by the time you tally up everything that you would like, the basic stuff that you would really like to have that you trust, it's robust, uh, you have a lot of confidence in and everything. By the time you have tested all these things and tried them out and broken a bunch of stuff and, and all this stuff, it can get quite expensive still. Take lighting, for example. Once I settle on my two favorite lighting options, a headlamp and a held and a handheld, that's that's my way to go. The headlamp is for all purpose work. The the handheld is for penetrating the woods, penetrating the forest and seeing at a distance. Uh, once I've tried and settled on the ones that I love the most and that I trust the most, and I've narrowed down what I think is the best quality brand and model in those two categories, offering the you know the greatest lumens for the longest battery life duration. And now everything you know is, is rechargeable. How are you gonna do that, right? Uh, well, in my opinion, if you're going to go rechargeable, you need a, a hybrid. You need a hybrid because let's say that your batteries poop out in the middle of the night and you're lost out in the middle of the darkness. You're going to stop and charge your flashlight on a, a, uh, a power bank? You're going to do that? You're going to wait around for an hour and just twiddle your thumbs in the middle of the dark? with a bear chasing you or a Bigfoot, you know, coming after you in the middle of the dark. No, you want to be able to just pop that sucker open, throw some batteries in there, some spare batteries, and go. Charge it later. So that's what I mean about a hybrid. If you're going to go flashlight or lamp or something like that, you don't want just a rechargeable flashlight or a rechargeable lamp. The only thing that makes sense to me is a hybrid. It should be able to just be charged off of power bank. But also you want it to be able to take batteries, normal batteries. Once I settle on my headlamp, my handheld, you know, I, I can only really afford to buy one at a time. You know, I, I can't really afford to, to buy like four at a time. Not the high quality stuff. Cheapo, sure. But high quality, like LED Lenser. Do you guys know that brand of flashlight? LED Lenser, LED L-E-N-S-E-R, I think it is. Favorite flashlight that I own is a lead lenser. And uh, the only reason I own it is because I found it out in the woods. I found it out in the backcountry. I just stumbled across it. Picked it up. Uh, obviously, it was uh, had been used a lot then. That was 10, 12, 13 years ago. And uh, still, to this day, it's my favorite flashlight. Well, those flashlights are not cheap. They're not cheap. That flashlight that I found probably went for a hundred bucks. So it's, uh, you know, I'm not a rich man. $400 to buy four of them. That's a, uh, that, that, that hurts a little bit. Plus the headlamp on top of that. Sam buying four, you know, $50 headlamps. That's an ouchie. That's an ouchie right there. I, I can buy like one at a time right and I've got other expenses and stuff like that but 
once I get them, they get scattered around to strategic locations where I imagine I'm most likely to need them. But sometimes I have to transfer them from one location to another, from one pack to another pack, from my Jeep to my house. In my ideal world, where money would not be a factor, I would just buy a dozen and I'd have them placed everywhere. So remember the topic here is challenges I find to be unprepared. Financial challenges, right? If the financial consideration was not a consideration, I'd just buy a dozen of those things. Just buy a dozen of the same high-quality light, have them everywhere. So then wherever I'm at, I just it's there. In my ideal world, I'd have at least four other identical setups on standby, like I said earlier, and I just can't afford to spend that kind of money that way. But if I could, I definitely would. Same thing with boots. I'd love to have a, a brand new pair of uh, Merrells or Keens, Gore-Tex boots, always stored in my, my truck, my home, my feet, uh, anywhere else I can imagine. You just store those suckers everywhere. But when it comes to time to buy uh, something like that, I, I can't just go and spend that sort of money on boots. You know, just buy like 12 boots, pairs of boots. I wouldn't have money to buy other items that I consider necessary, like wool blankets, tarps, quality built packs, etc. So the result is that there's always a real possibility that I'll get stranded in a blizzard one day while driving and not have my boots with me when I go to fish them out of the back of my truck because maybe I took them out to use them and they never made their way back. You know, I, I try to be good about that, but um, I'm just a person. So, yeah, not being rich is a real obstacle to being as prepared as I'd like to be in my ideal world. Now, let's talk real quick about, uh, I mean, we got six minutes here. Let's talk about this recent excursion that I went on in the backcountry. Remember, what you're listening to right now, I call the podcast episodes. The adventures are me, I'm not talking to you on the adventures on the adventures i'm just spending my time out in the woods and i'm sharing that with you so if you'd like to see that i know a lot of you folks just listen on the uh the podcast just listen you know on apple podcasts uh, spotify things like that but if you'd like to see me out in the woods uh it was fun it was uh, great to get out it was odd being out there without my dog people i took worse i took uh good buddy of mine that I that I grew up with uh, his name's Nate Nathan and uh, I took a, another friend a recent friend that I, I I've come to know his name's Seth and uh, his daughter come with us young teenage daughter so they'd never done anything like this before and you know we, we kind of threw it together relatively quick I mean in the last we, we threw it together within weeks and they'd never done anything like this so that was nice of course again like I said earlier the in the adventures I don't really speak to the camera and stuff like that it's it's mostly I'm just trying to focus on on my time out there and you know I set up a camera what I what I like to do is I set up a camera and I like to forget that it's even there because I don't want to feel like I'm like mugging for the camera or being influenced by the camera so it's nice when I start getting to work and everything and I forget that the camera is even on that's my favorite footage because I'm not being influenced by my knowledge that I'm on camera also the conversations happening around the fire stuff like that are all very natural 
So these folks I took, they never done anything like this before. I told old Nate he wanted to sleep in a hammock. I said, this is not the bad mouth Nate. He'd be all right with me sharing this. But I told him, I said, Nate, you really need to take something to insulate yourself. Because even in the summertime, no matter how hot it is during the day, in the night, you will get cold. The, the air moving beneath you will take all of your body heat out and you'll find yourself very cold you know looking at uh, the conditions and everything the projection for what the temperature was or the weather was supposed to be done and at the last minute i i said you know we, at the very least we need to take uh, long johns uh, well he was trying to go as light as absolutely possible and he got very cold on that first night and on the second night because he didn't insulate himself in the hammock that confirmed to me that uh, that my memory of such a thing is is dead accurate. Uh, I remember doing the the hammock thing and just waking up like three o'clock in the morning, just freezing. This was in middle of summertime, you know, where daytime temperatures were like eighty degrees Fahrenheit. Alexa, what's eighty degrees Fahrenheit in Celsius? Eighty degrees Fahrenheit is about twenty six point seven degrees Celsius. All right, so almost 27 degrees Celsius, but even so, uh, the the hammock does not hold your heat, and the, because of the air moving beneath you in a hammock, just takes the heat right away, and away from you, and you wake up cold. But he wanted to do it his way, and now, I mean that's the way you learn, ain't it? Uh, it? Nothing wrong with being skeptical of what somebody tells you and figuring out figuring it out on your own. So we found parking that first day, uh, loaded up, tried to decide how cold and hot. I did take some like 50 degree goose down sleeping bags. And at the last minute, I encouraged them to take the sleeping bags because the temperatures just at night just were not gonna be up as, as high as I had originally expected them to be. So they took the uh, down sleeping bags, they were fine. Again, I suggested <laughs> that Nate take long johns. He didn't do that and he suffered for it. Uh, very cold on the first night. I did not put my long johns on the first night, and I got cold. I got very cold. On the second night, I did put my long johns on. Wool long johns. I still got cold. So on the third night, I just we got the fire going, ripping, roaring, and I slept next to the fire. I stayed cozy warm all night on that third night. Um, let's see here. We stayed up very late around the fire, had these deep philosophical discussions, had probably too much uh, hooch. And, uh, of course, that made for some interest, more interesting discussions. And we got to bed so late that first night, it was ridiculous. But, like I said in uh, other episodes, I'm very hard to pull away from the fire. This was the trip where th everything started breaking on me. Tripod I took uh, broke on me in the middle of the night. So, I got like one day of footage using a tripod. The rest of the days of footage, you're going to notice... I'm carry, I'm using my hand <coughs> to film everything because I don't have a tripod after that first day. My stool broke. That really wonderful, awesome stool that I've just been bragging on and bragging on in other episodes broke on me. And uh, it wasn't until after this trip that uh, the guy I took with me, Seth, says, oh, yeah, I think I stepped on that in the middle of the night. So I think he broke it. But remember, I did a... 
an episode early on when I started the Practical Woodsman where it was the title of it was Search for Weak Spots in Seemingly Strong Things. This stool, it seemed like it was bomb-proof, but the th- there was just a small plastic part holding the three legs at their axis. That's what broke. There you go. There's another unknown unknown. I mean, I looked that thing up and down to try to find the weak spot in it, and I just completely overlooked that. Well, that's the thing that broke. My Uko candle lantern broke. UCO, you know those candle lanterns? Yeah, I had a candle lantern with me on the very first night. Didn't get to use it past the first night. Didn't get to use the candle lantern past my first night. Didn't get to use my stool. My and I really I want to replace that because even though it's it's kind of expensive, that was just a it's a wonderful design. So I want to replace that. My stool broke. The tripod that I was using to to film everything that broke on me in the very first stinking night. Really put a hair in my biscuit. So, I've got some replacements for that for the next trip. Lots of water on this trip. Water was really not an issue for the first couple of days. Uh, Drinking unfiltered water. Convincing the guys and the girls that it was okay to do that. Everybody was hesitant at first, but they quickly adopted my approach to that. They felt comfortable with that, and everything was fine. So, you'll get to see that. Um, storms constantly trying to blow in on us most of the first afternoon but rain never come on the first day or night that came later as you will see later when I publish the other episodes of that adventure yotes coyotes on the first night very eerie these guys had never been out there before the one Seth uh, the, the the father of the daughter he and I were up late it was like 3.30 in the morning he says what is that and I, I could see he was a little spooked I, I'm going to let him I'm going to let them, him sweat this out for a little bit so I said to him what do you think it is he sat there he said it sounds like it sounds like a bunch of babies crying up in the deep dark woods I said yeah it's eerie isn't it that is coyotes. So that was his first experience hearing, hearing them. Remember, I, I always describe them as being like a, sound like a, a room full of people having a cocktail party coming down through the deep dark woods. But because it's so far out of place, it's so unnatural in that setting, it's spooky. Morning poo poo. So I did a couple of tasteful videos to illustrate my way of going about taking a hearty dump in the woods and i'm going to be sharing that not not in this first so this is uh, adventure 13 part one you're not going to see a tutorial on that in part one but in adventure 13 part two and three is where you might get to see something like that so something to think about and to look forward to if you ain't seen that uh, that adventure run over to youtube or rumble and check that out ladies and gentlemen i appreciate you joining me for this episode of the practical woodsman that's right it's my genius which has brought this all to fruition thank you i'll see you in the next episode take care